Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week James Crossland, who is Senior Lecturer in International History at Liverpool John Moores University and a founding member of the Humanitarian Working Histories Group. He is the author of Britain and the International Committee of the Red Cross, 1939 to 1945, and most recently of an excellent book called War, Law, and Humanity, the Campaign to Control Warfare, 1853 to 1914. James Crossland, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. So I very much enjoyed this book and learned a great deal. Can you give us a brief summary of what you were trying to do with War, Law, and Humanity? The purpose of the book was uh, basically to chronicle um, what I dubbed the Campaign to Control Warfare, which was a a, um, two-pronged campaign um, with two factions within it that existed in the late 19th century, comprised of uh, the people I called the Mitigators, those who wanted to try and make war a uh, more humane practice, and those who I dubbed the, the peace seekers, those who uh, believed that there was no point in trying to make war more humane, and that the only way to make war more humane was to eradicate it altogether. And I wanted to look at how these two uh, aspects of this movement, these two um, factions within this movement, evolved and bounced ideas off each other, uh, principally across the Atlantic, it's very much a transatlantic um, group um, in the years leading up to the fateful year of 1914. He interacted with each other and sabotaged each other and reminded me, sadly, of the current peace movement uh, at various points. Uh, uh, Crimea is in the news lately uh, mm. and is also the, the starting point of your story, more or less, isn't it? Yes, it's um, it's a you know a handy little flashpoint. Um, but yes, the the Crimean War, I felt was a, a good spot to to start the book because that's really where you get the end of this um quite robust period for the peace movement, the international peace movement that really kind of comes alive at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. Um, flourishes has a lot of conferences, membership goes up. They have some pretty heavy hitters politically advocating for a new peaceable world order. And then that very quickly uh, falls apart in the 1850s with the onset of the Crimean War, um, and it's further uh, brought down uh, by the various wars of the 1860s in the the United States and in in, uh, Central Europe. Um, But it's also the the crucible, as I call it in the book, of the mitigators uh, and their humanitarian mission which really kicks off with the highly publicized work of Florence Nightingale, um, who is sent over uh, to the Crimea basically to try and address the, the very public concern over the, the way the war is going in terms of, from a humanitarian uh, point of view, um, how the war is going for, for Britain and, and France, and how there is a scale of soldier suffering and coverage, importantly, of that suffering in the newspapers that had been hitherto unknown in war. Um, and so it's it's really the the period when you get the the rise of the the mitigators um, coming out of the Crimean War and 
an end of a, a chapter, at least, in the, uh, the Peace Seekers campaign. You, you write that the Crimean War was the first war where the public, back in the home of, of the empire, uh, were learning about the war in, in real time. Uh, but apparently they were somehow learning about it in a way that didn't suggest ending it, suggested to their minds uh, reforming it, humanizing it, uh, fixing it up. Is, is that a function of how how the of how the journalism was done uh, or or just of the uh, of the culture of the time well it's it's a bit of both i mean the journalism uh did have a certain amount of jingoism in there there was never any consideration that perhaps this was a, a futile war a pointless war a war that didn't need to be fought um there were certain mutterings in that direction but those usually turned more into criticisms of the way the war was being fought. But the justifications for it um, usually presented as this is an attempt to, um, or a necessary attempt that needs to be made to try to stop uh, Russia from uh, picking on the the, the sick man of Europe, the Ottoman Empire, um, and in so doing, securing from a strategic perspective uh, the Eastern Mediterranean for Britain and France. Um, That was never really questioned. And (laughs) <laughs> From the imperial perspective, this is also a war that you know was supposed to go well. It was it was Britain and France, two great empires uniting uh, against despotic Russia. It should have gone well. It didn't. From the outset, it was disastrous, pretty much from day one. Um, and the the fact that this was the the growth of the, the newspaper age and the um, uh, deployment of war correspondents on mass for the first time it led to this perfect storm where you had a, a breaking down of the, the, the reasons for war and a more an opening up of the avenues for critique in, in public forums over the nature of the war. Sure, sounds painfully familiar, a lot of it. Uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 you mentioned the name Florence Nightingale. There's some other names in terms of the, the humanizers of war that, that people have probably heard of, Clara Barton, for example, and then some others that people are perhaps a little less familiar with. Who are, who, who are some of the main characters in the book? Well, the, the key figures on that side of the equation amongst the, the mitigators and the humanizers is um, uh, Nightingale, as mentioned, she formed the sort of pragmatic school of, of thought, which is to get in there, heal the men, get them fighting fit, get them out there and, and, and ready to go to continue the war and, and fight it to its logical conclusion. Um, and then you have people like Henri Dunant, who is the founder of the, the Red Cross, um, who comes at it from a very different perspective. He sees the process of humanizing war and getting volunteers normal people, not necessarily medically trained people, but people just uh, succumbing to a Samaritan spirit and getting out there on the battlefield to do their best. He sees that as something that's both necessary in terms of the, as a response to the type of suffering, the scale of suffering that's happening at this time. He also sees it as a, a means of perhaps bringing nations together, bringing people together, a shared experience. Um, so he sees it from a more, shall we say, philosophical point of view and more of an internationalist viewpoint. Um, and he is a highly influential figure in, in, in the story um, and unique amongst the humanitarians of the piece in that he ends up actually swapping sides and becoming a, a peace seeker towards the end of his life um, after a, it's quite a you know, fantastical up and down life that he has. 
And Barton, as you mentioned, who who is both a, a fanatic of the Red Cross spirit, but also has somewhat of the Nightingale school about her, in that she sees her task as being to um, uh, succor the the, um, the wounded of the Union so that they can fight this war against the Confederacy um, to uh, um, to the conclusion that she wants it to, to reach. She becomes more of an internationalist in the spirit of, of the Red Cross after the, the Civil War, um, but ultimately she's 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 very much an amateur in, in this in this business and kind of gets left behind by the professionalizing of, of humanitarian action, which is another a feature of this period. Um, we often work from the assumption that the professionalizing of the Red Cross and, and humanitarian networks in war is a is a post First World War, post Second World War even phenomenon, but actually. That process begins as far back as the 1860s, and, and Barton is somewhat of a casualty of that. We are speaking with James Crossland about his book, War, Law, and Humanity, the Campaign to Control Warfare, 1853 to 1914. Uh, so who are some of the, the people you call peace advocates, the people who want to, to end war-making? The two key figures uh, in the book are Frederick Passy and uh, Bertha von Suttner. Um, Passy is uh, a French politician. He is uh, a writer. He's a, he's a deep thinker. He's also very pragmatic, um, I, I feel. Well, my assessment of him is that he's very pragmatic, at least, in that he understands that simply speaking of peace and appealing to the, the, the good nature of people uh, and even just pointing out the horrors of war isn't going to get the, the movement very far. He understands that there needs to be uh, a readjustment of people's actual thought processes around war, such as he had earlier in life when he was basically told stories about the Napoleonic Wars by his father and came away from it not so much inspired but more horrified. And so to his mind... It was about, uh, the cause of peace was about education, and it was also about creating systems, international systems, reliable, credible systems that governments could bank on to keep the peace. Um, so he's got this, uh, a very, uh, he, he wants to see the detail, he wants to see the plans of how peace is actually going to be put together. He wants to see the architecture of a, of a global peace. And then Bertha von Suttner is uh, perhaps on a more um, intangible end of the spectrum in that she is a, a wordsmith. She writes um, some very influential books, the most influential being Lay Down Your Arms, which is uh, a call, a, a warning, really, to, to all of Europe that wars are already very bad and they're only going to get worse with the new technology that's being developed, new weapons technology in the 1890s. Um, the creation of mass armies, and this, she's very much playing off this lingering fear in the 1890s that there is a global conflagration coming. There is going to be something big, some kind of uh, big war with suffering and death on a scale that, that no one had ever seen before. And she plays into that, and so she kind of tugs on the, the emotions of people whilst Passy tries to fill in the blanks with details. And together they make quite a formidable team, and they're a big part of the reason why the peace movement gets a, a, a new shot of life into it in the 1890s going into the, the first years of the 20th century. 
It's very interesting, uh, as you mentioned uh, a little bit ago, how much ideas were shared across the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, and when it comes to the question of law, you have in the book an interesting discussion of Francis Lieber's Lieber Code, which seems to have followed a pattern that's been common in laws on war ever since, uh, if not prior as well, uh, in, in that it has an almost infinite loophole in the law so that uh, there are restrictions on what you can do in mm-hmm. war unless they are justified by the sort of uh, vague term of military necessity, which is, mm-hmm. as far as I've been able, able to ever tell, whatever the military wants to do. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is that it's, what um, was it, created there? It is the gray loophole, yes. Um, and it, it's there for a reason. Um, uh Lieber, I mean, Lieber is not a, a pacifist. He's very, very far from. Uh, he's a man who wants the Union to fight a good, clean, um, victorious war. And he wants it done yesterday. He wants, he wants the Civil War over and done with. He believes that without uh, restraints being imposed on Union troops, there'll just be this, this mob, this rabble. Um, in, indulging in plunder and, and murder and, and whatever else, um, when they should be, you know, killing Confederates and winning the war. So that's the mindset that he's bringing to his um, his laws of war. And they are very, I mean, the, the Lieber Code is a very sprawling document. There are parts of it that are incoherent, it's contradictory. Um, as a legal document, it's highly problematic. But in amongst there, he puts in the, 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 the military necessity clause because he understands the nature of the war that's being fought. And he understands that, you know, what he's laying down are ideas of how things should be. But that in practice, he, he was a soldier himself earlier in life, and he understands that in practice, this might not always be followed. So he was looking for, I mean, he wanted an ideal of how the Union was going to operate, like a well-oiled war machine. He understood that that necessarily wasn't going to be the case, and he wanted that loophole in there for that reason. Um, and it's, as you say, it's, it's a feature of the laws of war. Um, it survives through this period, despite being nuanced here and there with certain tweaks of language. As a principle, it survives primarily as a way of getting military leaders and statesmen into conference rooms. Um, because without that loophole, without that, that escape clause, if you like, um, the idea of getting military men to something like the Hague or the Brussels Conference of 1874 or any of these grand conferences, it, it seemed a dubious prospect. So right. the military necessity was a sort of a, a dangling carrot in some ways. You know, come and listen to our, to our rules. But bear in mind that you've <laughs> you got, don't you've have got to the follow them if you need it. <laughs> yeah, Bertha von Suttner's views turn out to be a lot more clear cut, and then the mm-hmm. Lieber's law a lot more intangible and uh, uh, and vague uh, when you when you look at what's what's required. But there, you, you know, people always say, "Well, what would you do instead of war? What would you replace war with?" Uh, and and you point to uh, many incidents, but one that I think uh, should probably be a lot better known. And that is uh, the arbitration between the United States and Britain uh, in 1871 following the U.S. Civil War in which Britain had aided the the Confederacy. Uh, And here you had an arbitration agreement, a settlement without war with numerous nations involved in bringing two parties to the table. That looks like a model that could have been 
followed uh, consistently was, by by every other future conflict. Uh, why wasn't it? Well, it was it was certainly seen in in the way in which you just described it as this uh, with great potential at the time, and it was leapt upon by by peace seekers of the age and international lawyers as that framework that Pathy in particular had been looking for a way to tangibly sell peace and, and to give it some sort of international structure, some rules and regulations that could be followed. Um, the concept was very sound, and it was pretty well thought out. Uh, basically, if two states are um, on the precipice of war or have lingering disputes, they would submit their complaint to a neutral court of arbitration with uh, four to five lawyers from countries that don't have a, a dog in the fight, as it were, countries unrelated to the foreign affairs of the nations in question. They would adjudicate, and the two parties would accept uh, that adjudication and avoid war. Um, the issue with it at the time, and this was came to the, the fore, particularly in 1873, a quite notorious peace congress that occurred in 1873, where there, there were those who said, you know, basically what you just said, that why aren't we doing more of this? Why isn't this happening? And it was pointed out by those who had actually sat on the Alabama Claims uh, um, Tribunal after the, the, uh, the Civil War that actually, if you look at the, the history of this, it's been the United States and Britain who have managed to arbitrate. And, and they were historically the two, the two nations that were willing to submit their, their qualms to arbitration and willing to, to sort it out and accept the, the judgment more importantly. Now, a big part of the reason for that was that we're talking about two nations that, that share a history, uh, share a language, share a, a, a law system, roughly speaking, um, and share certain mores and cultures and, and, and opinions of war and peace and, and indeed international relations. Um, and so there was much common ground on which to work. Now, as was pointed out at the time, this would be a, a, a daunting prospect uh, submitting uh, a, a nation that did not hold to the same kind of views or legal system as Britain to arbitration. Um, and this was deemed problematic. And even in the case of, of Britain and, and the United States, there were moments in the 1890s when they attempted to submit things to arbitration that didn't really turn out, uh, primarily because the United States said, by doing this, we would be giving up our sovereignty in some way. And there's the, the S word, which always comes into these these problems of... of uh, uh, international agreements, you know, where's our sovereignty in this? Right. So even in that most successful of arbit arbitration relationships between Britain and the United States, there there was still grounds for, for dissent and for abandoning the, the, the process. But as a concept, it was it was easily the most tangible and, and realistic idea that the peace movement of this era came up with. I, I suppose the United States was also making agreements with Native American nations. It just wasn't mm -hmm. uh, complying with any of them afterwards. Yes. <laughs> so yes. there's that difference. Uh, the, the question might be posed now, looking back on this movement and uh, these two sort of parallel movements to, to humanize war or to abolish war and, and, and what's followed them. Uh, has war been humanized or civilized or regulated in any way? It, it seems that now it kills mostly civilians in contrast to that period. And torture is increasingly acceptable. New horrible weapons are added every year. Elements of war are increasingly intruding on civilian life. I mean, an advocate for the abolition of war might ask 
rather mockingly has the, you know, how has the humanizing of war been going? I think that's why this this era, and this is partly what drew me to this era in particular, because this is really a um, a crucial moment where war hasn't become about civilians yet. Um, I mean, yes, there are always civilians who are suffering in war, but at this point, it is still uh, it is still a clash of, of arms, uh, primarily speaking. We do not have the total wars of the 20th century, uh, and we don't have, you know, we're, we're, this is pre-air power, so we do not have bombing. Um, it, it's, it's a moment before the, the, the real uh, tensions and problems that come up with these various revolutions in military affairs in the 20th century unleash the whole host of problems you just outlined about how you can possibly humanize war when the battlefield has, has dissolved into the civilian sphere. Um, and that's why this was such an important moment, because, as I argue in the book, it, it does very much lay down some of the key uh, the, the actors in this era. They lay down some of the key theories and ideas for how to police war into the 20th century. Now, in answer to your question, have these ideas worked well? I think the problem is the goalposts have shifted. Uh, the ideas that they came up with worked for the kind of wars that were being fought, at least they worked in theory, for the kind of wars that were being fought in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But with the onset of total war, um, it, it threw up a whole new host of challenges. And these were challenges that, in, in regards to civilians, weren't really addressed until the 1949 Geneva Conventions, when you finally get a, a consensus on this idea that, you know, we shouldn't be bombing civilians, even though there'd been mutterings to that effect and there'd been precursor arguments in that in, in that arena for, for decades prior. Um, it takes two world wars for for some kind of consensus on that to come about. And as you point out, I mean, consensus does not necessarily reflect reality in practice. Um, so it's a process, I think, is probably the, the best way I can put it, is that it, it is a process, and it's a torturous process of trying to basically keep up with the developments in war, the escalation of war, new weapons, new accepted norms. But I do think this period was formative in, and, and important in that it laid down some key ideas. And this goes right back to Lieber and some of the ideas he outlined, albeit somewhat problematically in 1863. They're nonetheless ideas that persist. And, and I mean, there are ideas in the Lieber Code that are enshrined in the laws of war to this day. Um, and I don't think that's without merit, um, but it is a process, and it's a difficult process, and it's obviously one that's going to be ongoing for as long as wars are fought. As I mentioned, I, as I was reading uh, this book, which I highly recommend, War, Law, and Humanity, The Campaign to Control Warfare, 1853 to 1914, I, I was struck by sad similarities to conflicts and internecine battles in the peace movement today, where we see the advocates for peace and the advocates for humanizing war trying to infiltrate and win over each other's conferences and sabotage mm -hmm. each other's programs. Do you think there was any, I mean, it's it's science fiction to, to imagine a different history. It's not history, but do you, do you can you imagine any way in which these two groups might have worked together uh, and uh, and accomplished more. It's an intriguing notion, isn't it? And I think it's one that that didn't occur to many of the the humanizers or, or the peace seekers at the time. The only one who really 
saw a way forward in that respect was Gustave Monnier, who was the uh, president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, also an international lawyer and a friend of Frederick Passy. And he um, believed in, in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War, which was a disaster for, for the Red Cross, the Red Cross symbol was uh, barely respected and it was a, a, a pretty lawless conflict. Um, in the wake of that, he, he came up with the idea of using the concept of arbitration to basically uh, adjudicate on war crimes and to apply the same kind of idea about uh, the same kind of apparatus of, 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 of putting crimes of war in front of neutral arbitra- arbitrators in order to um, use that process to either create peace or, if war happened, uh, enforce a, a supposedly humane conduct in war. So he wanted to kind of bring the two movements together using the arbitration idea for both purposes. Now, this idea was completely rejected by, by all sides. And this, I think, the reason why was because of the the grand stumbling block and the the reason why fundamentally these two sides could not get on is that there was a massive philosophical difference between them. Um, And and von Sutner was the one who who really articulated this most boldly when she she said, you know, why bother trying to humanize war? Wouldn't it be better just to not send men to war? As simple and brutal as that. there's no point in trying to humanize war. All you're going to do is, is recycle the wounded and get them back into the fray. And that, was a, that wasn't her argument alone. That was a pretty firmly held argument throughout the peace movement. And considering that that was the whole raison d'etre of the Red Cross, uh, the leaders of the humanizer movement, it made reconciliation um, somewhat of a chimera. I mean, it, it was... They had moments where it looked like they could at least agree to disagree, but even those um, ended in fracture. So right. I honestly can't think of a way they could have reconciled that because it was it was a philosophical difference that was near impossible to overcome. We, we, ha- we have just a couple of minutes left. I wonder if you think that one side of that philosophical difference uh, today uh, gains anything from the fact that nuclear apocalypse is increasingly risked by the continuation of war, and war is a major contributor to climate disaster that is pretty well locked in and can only be mitigated at this point. Does d- d- does that situation shift the balance between reform and and abolition? Well, I think I think it's got the. The potential to, because the, when you bring in concerns like environmental concerns, and when you bring in something like the, the threat of nuclear war, which obviously wasn't present in the 19th century, um, you are by necessity you're bringing in more people, people who who wouldn't be otherwise concerned with matters of war and peace, perhaps who are suddenly alive to these ideas and thinking about them. And, and this, to be honest, in microcosm, is what happened in the 1890s that kind of expanded the movement under Sudner and Passy was this inclusion of people who wouldn't normally be um, thinking about these things. So yes, in in theory, more voices coming into the discussion should make that discussion more robust. You should get better ideas uh, and more implementation, but you would know better than I that it hasn't necessarily worked out like that. Um, And that, that, that is problematic. And perhaps getting more voices in the room just means that there might be more 
more things to fall out of. <laughs> there might be. Oh, we've got just about about one minute left. We we have, however, decided that certain certain things should be abolished: uh, child mm-hmm. abuse, rape, slavery. There are things we mm-hmm. don't try to regulate. Uh, at, at some point, shouldn't war be by universal consensus in that category? Yes, and and this is why, as I said before, it's a process, and I think that. Um, part of the problem is that with the, a lot of the stuff you mentioned, a lot of that, a lot of those things have been regarded as anathema on a sort of national or regional basis in various areas. Right. Problem is that war is a universal thing that's been practiced for for a very long time, and and as such, the the task is so much greater. But um, you know, as you say, these these things do change over time, and doesn't mean that it shouldn't be attempted. And there is a great deal to learn from reading about past attempts. The book, I highly recommend it, War, Law, and Humanity, The Campaign to Control Warfare, 1853 to 1914. We've been speaking with James Crossland. James, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.